0: Uh, Over the past couple of months, we have been in a series of teachings where we are walking through uh, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, This is our fourth chapter, fourth sermon in chapter number two. So this morning, we want to turn our attention to Luke chapter number two. We'll be reading verses 39 through 51. Only... uh, only announcement I'm gonna just re highlight is uh, the Fall Festival Carnival that we're gonna have on the 27th. I am excited about it. Uh, we'll have some free food here. The varsity truck will be here. We'll have some jumpy houses. It's just gonna be a fun time. Uh, even if it's just us together, I hope that you come and participate. Um, but also, we wanna use this as an opportunity to invite people on campus, uh, really just to show the love of Christ, uh, not to preach um, Adam per se, but we want to just be good neighbors and have something there will be a blessing to our community. So I hope that you will join us uh, the afternoon of the 27th. Luke chapter number 2, verses 39 through 52 declare, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning, and the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Uh, sitting sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them and he sat down with them and came to Nazareth and he was submissive to them and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and also man uh, just for a few moments I want to preach uh, from the chapter title living loving and learning living loving and learning let me pray for us God, I'm excited about what you are going to say and do through this message. God, I'm excited that Jesus certainly serves as a substitute for our sins. He died for our sins in our place. But also, we see how Jesus gives us a model for how to live the Christian life. Jesus gives us a model for how to live. Jesus gives us a model for how to love. And he gives us a model for how to learn. God, help us to be able to apply that to our lives. God, not just on Sunday and not just um, when I'm at church. God, but help that be a reality. God, help us, God, to, to be so exposed to the truth of your word, God, that we would be transformed. Help us, God, to see you clearly. And God, help us to not be the same. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen. When we pause to consider the first two chapters of the gospel according to Luke, uh, I believe that we can all agree that there are very few things that we can identify with in our personal experience. When you read the first two chapters, I am sure, I am convinced, I am, I am convicted that there will be very few things that you can personally identify with in terms of what you have experienced in your life. Uh, we've never been visited by an angel, never had a birth experience in a manger, Certainly have not not had shepherds visit. Uh, Certainly have not had a a wise group of men visit. Maybe you had a baby here and I visited, but I'm far from a wise man. And while the majority of the details of the first two chapters of Luke are totally foreign from my experience, the passage we read today will give us, will give the majority of us an opportunity to identify and connect with the text. Uh, Whether you have uh, had a child gone missing or whether you were a missing child, I think the majority of us have been in a similar situation, where parents have been looking for a child. Uh, maybe not for three days in the text. I want to give you uh, some context. They traveled for a day, which meant that they were a day away, meaning that it took them a day to get back, and they actually found Jesus on the third day. It's not that they were in Jerusalem for three, day, three days searching. It was three days from the beginning to the end. Uh, whether it was a school event or an athletic event or a family vacation, I'm sure that verse 48, when Mary says, son, you have caused great distress in my life, is something that every parent can connect with. I don't know who that's for today. I don't know who that's for. But I believe there's somebody here today who needs to hear that if Jesus caused his mother and father some stress, it's okay. If blank child, I'm not going to say no names because I don't know about the thing I'm picking on you. But when you think about the text, it's amazing to me that you see how Jesus is not just living his life in a way where he is going to the cross, but he's living his life in such a way where he's given us a model for how we can live our lives also. Uh, traditionally, when I've looked at this section of scripture, I've always broken it down from three different perspectives. Uh, the first section being verses uh, chapter 1 through 26, where Jesus is a promise uh, that is given to, the, to, to Mary and Joseph. Uh, the first thing I've always said is, God made a promise. God promised to give Mary, a virgin, a baby. God promised to do something that was impossible. And this announcement was not something new. This announcement was not something that caught God off guard, but this was God's plan from the foundation of the earth, that God had a plan to bring forth salvation through his suffering servant. That's the first first thing we see. But in chapter number 2 we also see uh, not just a gift promise but we see a gift received. We see that Jesus is given to his family. We see that Jesus is made we see that God makes a promise to give Jesus but we also see that God makes good on his promise. But then traditionally when we get to verses 39 through 51 or 52 traditionally I've looked at this passage as a reminder how God can a give us a promise How God can be, fulfill the promise, but see how we can neglect the gift that God has given us. It's very easy for us to live in such a way where we get comfortable and convenient with the things that God has given us and we begin to neglect the promise. Think about it from this perspective it's one thing to lose your child, it's one thing to lose the Son of God, it's one thing to lose the Messiah. It's one thing to lose the hope of the world. Like, how in the world could they lose God's hope? It's kind of a reminder of most of us, um, how, kind of how we uh, treat uh, our Christmas gifts. Uh, usually, uh, the day of Christmas, we're so excited. Uh, the day after Christmas, we're still a little excited. We're tweeting about the gift, we're posting about the gift, we're excited about the gift. We're doing research to get the fullness of the gift. But, a week, two weeks, A month later, the gift isn't special anymore. We don't talk about it. We don't appreciate it. We get so familiar with the gift that God gives us that we oftentimes neglect the gift that God wants us to to have. It's a reminder for me personally in my own life that a lot of times God will give me something that is amazing, that God will give me something that is incredible, that God will give me something that I've prayed for and waited for but because of my sinful heart in time, I want something bigger. I want something better. I want something more beautiful. And the farther we get from receiving the gift, the easier it is for us to neglect the gift. That is true in our lives uh, practically, but it's also true in our lives spiritually. It's easy for us to neglect the gift that God has given us because we get so familiar with what God has given us that we no longer appreciate the gift that God has given us. So to think about that Bible, when you first got it, like how excited were you to read God's word? When you first found the church that you love, like how excited were you to come to church? When you first got involved in that small group, like how excited were you to get involved in that small group? Like when God first gave you that spouse or that child or that house or that car or that job or that career or that degree. Fill in whatever you want to fill in, but, but how excited did we used to be and how Are we currently neglecting the gift that God has given us? That's traditionally how I've always looked at the passage. But this week in my study, I saw something totally different. When I read verses 39 through 52, it reminded me that Jesus certainly came to die for our sins in our place, but also when you look at it from a very practical standpoint, you see that Jesus is modeling growth, that Jesus is modeling how we go from immaturity to maturity. Jesus is modeling how we are on a journey of growth, how we will never get to a place where we're arriving, but this is a process where we are going to grow in favor with God, and favor with man. The Christian life, once again, is a life of growth. The Christian life is a life where we are given an opportunity to place our faith in Christ. And rather than simply placing my faith in myself, I'm allowing the life that God desires for me to be lived out through Christ. That's why we always must remember Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified With Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A lot of times we get frustrated in this Christian life because we want to live the life. Like, I want to try hard. I want to do more. I want to do things in my own strength. And the reality of it is, there's only been one person who's ever lived the Christian life, and that's Christ. And there's only one way for you to be able to live the Christian life, and it is through dying to yourself so that Christ can live. This week, I want you to study Galatians 2:20, and I want you to place your name in there when it says, "I have been crucified with Christ." I want you to place your name in there and say, "Thomas," or "Bob," or "Ron," or "Pilon," or whoever has been crucified with Christ. Meaning, Thomas's plans must die. Thomas's perspective must die. Thomas's preferences must die. Why? So that Christ can live in me, but also through me. For me to live the Christian life requires that I have a daily trust in Christ. Not a one-time prayer. Not a once-a-week, one-time-a-week-when-I-go-to-a-building kind of devotion. Not just when I need something on my job. Not just when I have a big test coming up. Not just when I have the big health exam uh, upon me. I have got to get to a place in my life where I'm willing to place my trust in Christ daily. And when you look at the text, when you look at the passage, when you look at verses 39 through 52, what you specifically see is this. You specifically see that Jesus certainly came to pay a price that he did not owe. But Jesus also came to give his life as an example for you and I to follow When you look at the text, Jesus is saying, here is how you do it. Here is how you live this life. Here is how you make practical application to your faith. So much more than Jesus just being a a good moral compass. So much more than than Jesus being uh, the rabbit's foot that will help you be a better parent or a better athlete. But following Jesus is about giving God honor and glory through my life. The fact of the matter is, when you are called to follow Christ, we are called to follow Christ because this is an issue of me giving my life to the honor and the glory of God. We are called to follow Jesus because that is what glorifies the Lord. We are called to follow Jesus because that is that is uh, an opportunity for us to model a relationship for the world. When we think about this issue of modeling, or when if you were if you were asked the question, "Have you ever modeled?" Uh, most of us uh, would usually think about a fashion show. We would think about uh, going down a runway. We would think about uh, paparazzi taking pictures. We would think about somebody walking uh, down a catwalk. But when you think about the idea of modeling, The reminder, or the reality of it is, we are all modeling something, every one of us. Every day that you live, you are modeling something. Could be good, could be bad. Every one of us, male, female, young, old, black, white, educated, uneducated, Republican or Democrat, every single one of us is modeling something for the world. And as believers, we've got to ask ourselves some really hard questions. Like as a husband, I've I've got to ask myself, like, what am I modeling for my wife? Like my wife should see me modeling commitment and faith to Jesus. My kids should see me modeling faith and commitment in my marriage and following Jesus. My coworkers should see me modeling faith and commitment to serving Christ. Notice I said they should see. Because the reality of it is, many of us, many of us do a really poor job of modeling what it means to walk with Christ. We've got to make a decision from the very outset that that the issue of modeling uh, a life that honors Christ is about God's glory. This is a weighty issue. This is more than about uh, checking off a box. This is more than about uh, doing the right thing. This is more than about just going through the motions and being a good Christian. This is about whether or not God will receive honor and glory through my life. This is about God receiving everything from my life. And when you look at Jesus, yes, he dies. Yes, he gives his life away. Yes, he serves as a substitute uh, for our sins. But he also serves as a model for us in terms of how we are to live the Christian life. When you look at the text, there are three significant things that we see Jesus model well. And the first thing we see is he modeled where he lived. He modeled where he lived. Verse 39 says once again, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The first thing we see is he was raised in Galilee, specifically in an area called Nazareth. He was not raised in the holy city. He was not raised in the best place. He was not raised in a place where people would be looking for a Messiah. He was not raised in a place that was a perfect situation. He was raised in a broken place. Even in John's Gospel, Nathaniel asked the question, "Can anything good come from Nazareth?" This is a place that Jesus was. Li- this is the place that Jesus lived. But catch this: this is a part of God's plan for His life. Jesus was planted in a hard place. Jesus was not planted in a place of perfect situations, a place of perfect circumstances. He was was planted in a place where his circumstances were not perfect, where his situation was broken, but God still allowed him to grow in the midst of a broken place. I I cannot say this enough. There is never going to be a perfect scenario and set of circumstances for you to grow. If you are waiting for all the stars to align, if you're waiting for things to get better with someone else, if you're waiting on things to change for you to grow, you will never, ever be able to grow. In the text, Jesus is planted in a hard place. In the text, Jesus is planted in a broken place. But the text tells us in verse 40, and the child grew and he became strong. In a broken city, but he grew strong. He was in a place that most people counted out, but he had God's favor. Most people would not have written the script that way, but God chose to plant him in that place. I want to encourage somebody. No matter where you are in your life, no matter what you've been through in your life, no matter what the circumstances are in your life, if you are there, it is a part of God planting you there. I'm not talking about sin. Like, he, he, this was not an issue of Sin. This is the issue of God's divine plan for his life. This is the issue of God saying, I'm going to plant you in Nazareth, and I want you to grow right where you are. I want to encourage somebody. You may be in a place that you do not want to be. You may be in a certain set of circumstances that you do not want to be in. But in the text, you see very clearly that God was able to grow right where he was. That is true for everyone here today, not just for the preachers. That is true for the full-time professional. That is true for the student. That is true for the working mom. That is true for the stay-at-home mom. That is true for the person who is married or single, the one with no kids or a lot of kids. God has planted you right where you are, and God wants you to grow wherever you live. That's for all of us. That's not just for me. That's for everyone here. So first we see where he lived, but secondly we see what he loved. Verse 41 says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning, and the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, his parents did not know. They were in Nazareth, where he had been planted, but it was a part of the design for them to make a trip. For us, for many of us, this doesn't make a trip, but this doesn't make, the trip doesn't necessarily make sense because we get in cars and we drive, but uh, there, was no, uh, there were no Yukons, there were no, um, there were no minivans, there were no buses, right? They had to travel in a caravan. The, the way things would break up, the men would leave from the front, the women would be in the back. And the, depending upon the child's age, uh, the child could either be, if he was a small child, they would usually be with the mom and dad, or be with the mom. If they were a little bit older, they would be with dad. Jesus was kind of in the in-between stage, and he was to a place where he could have been with mom, he could have been with dad. I mean, we do this all the time. Uh, you leave church, you have two different cars, and, you know, mom is thinking he's with dad, Dad is thinking he's with mom. This is a, a, a perfectly understandable scenario. They get away from him, and they realize that he is not with them. In verse 46, we, we realize that he loved to be in the father's house, or the father's building. Verse 46 says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. I just want you to ask yourself a question for a second. Why would Jesus, out of all the places he could be, find himself in the temple? Was it because the kids' ministry at the temple had really good snacks? Was it because the the kids' ministry in the temple had a new keurig? Was it because the kids' ministry had a, a water slide baptismal? Like, why did, Jesus, why did Jesus find himself in the temple? Like, why would Jesus make his way to the temple? Like, why would he be there? And we got to understand, the place that he went was synonymous with God's presence. We understand that God is not housed in a, in a physical building, but the temple was representative of God's presence. And we also know that there were no Bibles printed the way we have them today. There were no Bible apps so for him to hear God's word, he had to go to the temple. It was about uh, being in God's presence and hearing God's voice. He models for us why we should love being a part of God's house. Jesus loved the Father's building because of what it represented. It represented God's presence, and it represented an opportunity to hear God's voice. Now, we know for sure as believers, we are we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We have plenty of Bibles. We don't need to come to church necessarily to hear God's word preached. We don't need to come to church and necessarily hear a word from the Lord, but catch this. This is where we do it together. A couple of weeks from now, we're going to have, or maybe a little bit more than a couple of weeks, a little bit over a month from now, we're going to have Thanksgiving. And you know what? I'm sure that there are some great cooks here with dressing and and turkey and and cranberry sauce and potatoes and macaroni and whatever you can think of. Those things are great when you eat them by yourself. But guess what? Some things are just better together. There's some things in your Christian life that are better together. And when we come together to read God's word, we're collectively hearing God's voice together. When we come together and seek God's face, it's more amazing when we do it together. Yes, we can do that on our own. No, we do not have to come to church to do that. But catch this. Jesus is modeling that he loved the Father's building because it represented God's presence and God's voice. But secondly, Jesus not only loved the Father's building, but secondly, he loved the Father's business. Verse 49 says, And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Do you not know? that I must be in my father's house. Jesus is essentially saying, do you not realize why I came and what I'm called to do? Even as a young child, Jesus was living based upon who he was and what his father called him to do. Jesus, even as a young boy, was about his father's business. Jesus, from a very young age, was about spiritual activity, If we're wondering uh, what the activity was about, you can go to John 4.34. It simply says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6.35 says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but that the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose, uh, that that, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but I should be raised up. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The work that Jesus was called to do was redemptive work. The business that Jesus loved to do was God's business. As we look at how Jesus modeled this, no, 100%, you are not called to die on a cross. But catch this, you are called to die to yourself daily. Jesus tells us, we'll we'll get to this in Luke chapter number 9. Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him do what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus, even as a young boy, is modeling that you and I have divine work to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us very clearly, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you think about it, every one of us, every one under the sound of my voice, has divine work to do for God. Now, here's why I fail you as a pastor. It would be super easy at this point to stop the service, to tell Chris to come up, to play some really emotional music, and I can have a $100 line and a $1,000 line and a $10,000 line, and I can prophesy over you and tell you what God told you. That would be a lie. But churches do that all the time. Rather than doing that, rather than coercing you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge you to be in God's presence I'm going to challenge you to read God's word because when you read God's word, you hear God's voice. And as you read God's word and hear God's voice, i want to challenge you to ask God, what is the Lord calling you to do? It's easier for me to tell you to do that, but if you're going to hear from the Lord, you got to do that hard work for yourself. So first, we see where he lived. Secondly, we see what he loved. And thirdly, we see what he learned, what he learned. Verse 51 says, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. To appreciate verse 52, we need to be reminded of the doctrine of the incarnation. The incarnation is a reminder that Jesus, the incarnate word, that God became flesh. John 1.14 simply says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we say the incarnation, when we say the word became flesh, we're communicating that God did not cease to be God, but God chose to become a man. He chose to put on a shark. He chose to put on the flesh. Meaning that God, by divine order, makes a, makes a decision to, to take on our humanity. Jesus became a real man, yet he was sinless. He was a holy man, but he was still a man. This is a, this is a great uh, theological term. It's called the hypostatic union that Jesus was fully God and fully man, all in one. For the moment that God announced that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head back in Genesis There was an unwavering commitment that one day that God would become a man, that God would become flesh, that God would give himself um, in such a way where he would become to be one of us. The incarnation is super important because if there was no incarnation, if the word had not become flesh, there would be no salvation for humanity. If the word had not become flesh, there would be no substitution. If the word had not become flesh, there would be no crucifixion. There would be no resurrection. There would be no redemption. Jesus becoming a man is absolutely key to our faith. It is key to the doctrines of the church. We must understand that Jesus was not just here dwelling among us, but Jesus understands who we are because he became just like we are. One of my favorite theologians says, says it this way. A.W. Pink says, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. I'm going to say it again. The Son of God became a man to enable men or women to become sons and daughters of God. Here's what that means. It means that Jesus had an anatomy just like us. It means that Jesus had genes. It means that Jesus was a person. It means that Jesus was not just a picture of humanity, but he brought, he, he put on humanity. He became a man. He became flesh. Uh, he was a first century Jewish kid. He was from a backwater province. He was from a stinky little town. There was nobody who would have thought he would have been the Messiah. Uh, sometimes we have this idea that Jesus was this uh, superhuman kid, like he was, you know, able to dunk a basketball at five and, you know, he won all the races and uh, he, he, he was able to do algebra. Um, he was able to be like one of the, he was like operating like one of the little Avengers or something like that's not, that's not what we see in the text. He was a child. He was, he had to get his diaper changed. He had to be taught his alphabet, his ABCs. Jesus was not this superhero who never had a hard day. That's not what the text is teaching us. The, the text is communicating that Jesus understands the frailty of our humanity. It lets us know that Jesus was a man so much so that Jesus, Jesus understands your disappointments. Jesus understands your struggles. Jesus understands your weakness. How do we know that? Hebrews four fourteen tells us, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God? Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, in every in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. one of the, one of the most beautiful things that I was reminded of preparing for this sermon was Jesus understands my life it's easy for me to think that no jesus doesn't know my weakness no he was god he doesn't he does not really understand what it means to struggle or to have a hard day he doesn't understand what it means to be disappointed or let down or discouraged but the text tells us for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness he's able to sympathize with every weakness and disappointment that you have in your family, in your faith, in your finances, there is not an area of your life where Jesus is not able to identify right where you are. That is a truth that we need to accept, but here's a greater truth. Though Jesus knows our weaknesses, and though Jesus had to experience those weaknesses, the text tells us that he still increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and favor with man. It's a reminder that no matter where you are, that God has called you to continue to take steps of faith. That no matter where you are, that God is calling you to grow. That no matter where you are, that you have an opportunity to continue to grow, not just in favor with God, but also with favor with man. I'm going to say this, and I think it's, it's the truth. When you look at the text, I don't think it's by accident that it first mentions favor with God, then it transitions to favor with man. It's a reminder that when my vertical relationship with God is correct, it has an impact on my horizontal relationships. I can never have a right relationship with God and not be in right relationship with people. Sometimes we get to this place where we think that, um, or we use the excuse that, well, if the world hated Jesus, if the world persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute me. I get it. I get that. I'm with you. I'm with you. But could it be could it be that I'm not growing in favor with people because I'm not really growing in favor with God? Could it be that, that my horizontal relationships are having some trouble because of my vertical relationship is not right? Could it be? Just, just throwing this out there for you. Could it be that, that the issues I'm seeing with men is really an issue or really an indicator of the issues that I'm having with God. Because in the text it says he grew in every aspect of his life. We didn't say it was perfect. We know that he was going to still face opposition. We knew he still had tough and rough days ahead, but the scripture tells us very clearly that he grew in favor with God, and he grew in favor with man. So when we look at the text, we see three things very clearly. We see where he lived. He was not from a perfect place. He was not from a, a perfect set of circumstances and a perfect set of situations but he grew. We see what he loved. He loved the father's building and he loved the father's business. He loved to hear God's voice and he loved to be in God's presence. It should challenge me, Thomas, what do you love? Like, what are you pursuing? And lastly, we see what he learned. He learned how to have a healthier relationship with his father and that healthier relationship with his father led to healthier relationships with other people. Chris, you can come on up. We're going to have communion now. When you look at the text, there are three very simple points of application, and we'll be done today. The first thing that we need to consider is this. Every day, every one of us, every one of us has an opportunity to model something. I, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you are. I don't care where you work. I don't care your status. I don't even care if you're a Christian or not. You are going to model something today today. You're going to model something tomorrow. You're going to model something Tuesday, Wednesday. You're going to model something. you got to make a decision. Who are you going to be a model for? For Christ, in the word, or the world? Secondly, daily we have an opportunity to grow closer to someone. I hope and pray that we take that as as an encouragement to grow closer to Christ. That that growing closer to God is not something that is reserved for the spiritually elite or those who are a little bit more serious about the things of faith, but it is God's will for every single one of us to grow. I I say this to myself often, Thomas. God who created the heavens and earth, God who has wisdom and knowledge that is unsearchable, who has riches and power that is inexhaustible, he wants to spend time with you. But I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm wasting time. When God wants to spend time with me, and it's not going to happen by accident, it only happens when I take advantage of that opportunity. And thirdly, daily we have an opportunity to make an impact somewhere. I guess it's is my, my evangelistic kick that I'm on lately. Wherever you are, the Lord wants to use you right there on that job, in that neighborhood, in that family. And I love that people bring folks to church. I hope you start bringing more people to church. I hope our church continues to grow. But I hope we never get to a place in our life But we think that ministry is about bringing people to this building. Ministry is about you having an impact on the people who God is allowing you to do life with.